0: Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpey and Peter Torpey. Hello, I'm
1: Nancy. And I'm Pete. Developing new technologies sometimes involves people who are willing to work out the kinks in systems and also take some risks.
2: We'll speak with Simon Wheatcroft, a blind motivational speaker and distance runner, about his experiences running the New York City Marathon using the Wayband device for navigation. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Simon Wheatcroft.
3: I'm a big fan of technology, so you know I'm always reading about technology every single day and you know when you know You know, what's coming out, and if you're reading who's currently getting investment, sometimes all you got to do is send an email to the CEO and say, you know what, maybe we should work together. And you'd be surprised how often that works. (laughs) Well,
1: that sounds like a nice symbiotic relationship. I mean, after all these companies, you know, if they can find people who are visually impaired and, you know, need these assistive devices. And they've had experience testing and giving feedback on tests. That's a very valuable person to have, right? An actual user.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, um, these skills are incredibly important because often you'll find these products may be designed by people that aren't in the community. Mm-hmm. So then when you sit down and have a conversation and say, you know, I love the idea, but maybe it should work like this and this because of, you know, this and that and so who better to give input on the direction that those systems should take than a community that's been using that type of system for 10, 20, 30 years? So I think, you know, our community has got a lot to add to technology moving forward. I think we just need to be more vocal and reach out to these companies and say, look, you know, I think this should work like that and speak up, email the CEOs.
1: Well, you know, I find developers are generally very receptive to that kind of feedback. And if they can have good quality feedback to help them improve their products, make them more usable, that's great feedback for them.
3: Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, there's a few pieces of software that I often you know, dig around and think, you know, why isn't this accessible? And they're more than willing you know, to work on accessibility. It's just they don't know how to even go about making it accessible.
1: Right. And sometimes they just need to know what the issue is. If they don't know about an issue, they can't fix it.
3: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, you know, it just really comes back to that, that, you know, if something isn't accessible, reach out, ask why. And, you know, you never know. They might turn around and say, you know what, we'd love to make it accessible. Have you got any pointers on, you know, how we could do that? And I've been very successful in the past doing that with multiple companies just saying, you know, I love the product if you thought about, you know, changing, you know, these two little things, and then you're going to widen the market for people that are going to want your
0: product.
1: So don't be afraid to step forward, make your voice heard, and you might be surprised at the result.
2: Let's start by meeting Simon.
3: My name is Simon Wheatcroft, and I'm a huge fan of technology and for the past few years I've been using it to sort of partake in many interesting adventures. I lost my sight uh, when I was around 17, that's when I was registered blind. Um, From then, you know, my vision began to deteriorate um, until sort of mid-20s, late-20s, where I was down to light perception. And it was that point in time where I really began to embrace technology and really discover just how far it could take me.
1: That's always a difficult uh, transition, although it is helpful to have had a sense of visually what the world is like, I suppose.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, very thankful that I was born with sight. And for me, just understanding how much space an object physically takes up has been incredibly helpful. And obviously, I have a lot of memories of what particular things do look like, so I can often imagine things. And oddly, I do still have quite a, a visual memory and, and think of things in a very visual way.
2: What assistive technology do you use on a day-to-day basis?
3: Um, in my day to life, it's predominantly you know a lot of smartphone technology. So I'll, you know, I'll flip between an iPhone and uh, an Android phone, uh, iPad Pro, MacBook Pro, a lot of apple products (laughs) and then i use a lot of just real simple assistive technologies you know um things like the water level sensor you know for me that's still you know something that's rock solid something i use all the time you know and then even more basic things like little bump on stickers so a wide range of real sort of perhaps more cutting edge stuff down to real simplistic things
2: you know, it's funny you mentioned the very simple things like the bump stickers. We just moved from one house to another. We actually moved across the country, and we made sure before getting into the car and driving to the new house to go to the local association for the blind, and we picked up dozens of those little raised dots, and we've been decorating the whole house with them, the microwave, the touch pad on the front door, everything.
3: Yeah, you know... Being able to add a bit of tactile feeling to devices makes a big difference. Um, As much as, you know, I do embrace touchscreen technology, you know, I still love a physical button or, you know, even like you just say, attaching something to make it physical. We can never underestimate how useful those things are.
1: Yeah, and it just goes to show you no matter how sophisticated these technologies are, there are still some simple solutions that really work very well for many applications. And you just have to be open minded about what you're willing to use and try.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I used them on originally was uh, I had a treadmill at home and it was all touchscreen buttons. So, you know, I could get absolutely no feedback from this so way. I placed bump ons at all, you know, the relevant points. So then I was able to use a touchscreen that didn't, you know, utilize a screen reader. So, yeah, it's fantastic uh, use around the house.
0: You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 This week's focus topic
2: is how the Wayband device works and Simon's experience using it to guide him through the New York City Marathon.
1: So we originally heard about you in a story that detailed you running a marathon with some assistive devices you were testing at the time. And I was wondering if, first of all, before we describe the experience of running the marathon with this device, if you can describe the device and tell a little bit about it for our listeners.
3: Yeah, you know, it all started perhaps a little bit before, you know, the story you're you're talking about. Because then what happened was a few years ago, I really wanted to compete solo which for a blind runner is obviously very challenging. So the way I envisaged doing it was to go to an environment where there was no obstacles to run into, uh, you know, no other people. It's that place with the desert. So then I worked with IBM on uh, sort of a way to navigate a desert. And a desert is essentially quite simple in terms of navigation, because as long as you're heading in the correct bearing. You know, it's fine. So we came up with this idea called corrective navigation. And what it did was it created a virtual corridor within space. And that virtual corridor tracked the route of uh, the desert. And then as soon as you left this virtual corridor for the desert, the corridor was around 10 meters wide. It would use beeps. And those beeps, you know, how far you'd moved out of the corridor and they'd bring you back in line of the corridor. So pure silence. You knew you were going uh, in the correct direction. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, it turned out it works well, you know, for open-plane navigation. It's fantastic.
1: Was this a GPS-type solution, I take it?
3: Yeah, and the reason we did it in the desert is because it, it got rid of a lot of the variables. It, it made it a lot safer. Because mm-hmm. essentially in the desert, if you do drift, you know, there's perhaps not a huge difference between a piece of desert here and a piece of desert, you know, 10 years. Right.
2: That depends on whether you run into a giant cactus.
3: <laughs> um the desert I was in is Namibia, and there's nothing um you know there's no real life there's there's no real vegetation it, it's quite a a desolate desert um it turned out perhaps not as desolate as was anticipated There were a few issues um I did really severely hurt myself and i was I couldn't run for quite a large amount of time but the technology worked, and that, that was the important thing, really. That you know, this idea of navigating through constant correction is actually really useful for someone that's blind. You know, instead of saying, you know, perhaps like Google or Apple Maps do, say, turn left in 100 meters, turn right in 250 meters, now constant real time correction to ensure you're always going in the right direction. So, yeah, really great.
1: So it sounds like that worked reasonably well and then you were up for the next challenge to make it a little bit more difficult, I take it.
3: Yes. <laughs> so after I got back from the desert, I started training again and then I had uh, quite a bad accident while training. There was a burnt out car that had been left in the, on the sidewalk so I obviously didn't see it. Ran straight into it and you know I, I do still have uh, the scars from that. It was reasonably bad. And it was at that point I was like, well, you know, now we really need to come up with a way not only to do the navigation, but to also avoid the objects because it's it's just becoming too dangerous.
2: So I gather you've been training solo without a guide.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I've, I started doing that in 2010, 2011. Yeah, around then.
1: I take it that's still when you had a little bit of vision that
3: could help you navigate. No, I was uh, a little daring, shall we say. Um, What I did is, where I live, and there's an airport not too far away, it's like uh, around two miles, and the airport had been finished, but the infrastructure of the airport had never been finished, Um, so that meant lots of closed roads and things like that. So I first started running, well, technically I first started running on a football pitch, but then I transitioned to this road. So I started running on the closed road, just up and down a closed road, and I was using a an app on my phone again that all it gave was distance markers. You know, so it'd say you've run zero point three miles, zero point six, zero point nine, and then I was using what it felt like underfoot, pairing it with those distance markers, and I memorized uh, the three mile route off this closed road and then onto the open roads. So I knew that route just incredibly well.
1: That's still quite intrepid, though. <laughs>
3: Yeah, that was probably, you know, probably some of the most daring stuff that I was doing back then, and it, it you know, it took a while, it took a few months to learn it, you know, I did run into the posts and, you know, the trees and, and things like that, it was, it was tough, but I, I did spend a lot of time on this, you know, this one piece of road, it, you know, it's in the thousands of miles of training on this road, so I knew it mm-hmm. just unbelievably well, you know, um Even now, you know, after not training on it for for a chunk of time, I can go out there and I can run that.
1: But it sounds like the training process has still left you with some scratches and bumps.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know, um, the car went into my shin and my knee and sliced all the way um, down my right arm as well. So I've got a scar that runs uh, all the way down my forearm and stuff. So, uh, yeah, I certainly wouldn't recommend it. I was happy to accept the risk at that point in time but you know as time moves on you know your life changes and you know I've got two children now and that does make a difference yeah it's you know it's just too risky you know it's yeah yeah it was dangerous I was willing to do it in the early days you know my I, I did have one my eldest son was born then and we're starting to get a bit of a touch and go. But then once the second arrives, it's probably time to move away from doing things a little bit too risky. But, you know, the idea was then that maybe we can make this safer through technology. Right. You know, right. Um, technology moves forward. And the idea is that eventually we'll get to a point where, you know, if you want to go out and train solo, you don't need to take the risks. That...
2: And what manner of technology did you find that you think has made running solo safer for you?
3: After I'd done the desert and the, you know, the car accident, that's when I started looking around for anyone else that was working on, you know, similar technology. And I did find that company, and, and that was a company called WearWorks, based out of Brooklyn, and they were working on a corrective navigation system. And rather than using the beeps like uh, I'd, I'd done in the desert, they've done it all through haptics, so vibrations. But again, virtual corridor, and then if you exit the virtual corridor. It used vibrations to bring you, you know, back in line. And then uh, the way we were detecting other people was really simple, just ultrasonic sensors. And again, that had uh, a separate corridor that wasn't the same as the virtual corridor would create for navigation. And then if someone entered that virtual corridor, there was some uh, vibration uh, strap on your chest and it would vibrate and, the amplitude would change depending how far the person was away from you. So you could figure out if there was a person or an obstacle in front and, Mm -hmm. you know, you could move left or right to avoid that person. So it was a combination of corrective and uh, object detection. So
1: this was interesting. It was a combination of GPS and some of these sonar technologies and that way you got a little bit more precise feedback on obstacles as well as your direction.
3: Yeah, you know, I think, you know, moving forward, um definitely different sensors are going to be you know incredibly helpful to the sort of VR community personally i think what would be considered time of flight sensors are probably going to be the most helpful so moving away from ultrasonics and so time of flight is basically you know when you're sending out something like a laser or infrared and it's bouncing back and then you can figure out the depth of the scene so you know there can be many objects in a scene but you can get a sense of all the different depths Mm -hmm. and with Mm -hmm. depth, you can begin to detect if it's an object that needs to be avoided.
2: So let me just understand the way you described this device Um, with the various sensors. You had the one strap on your chest and you were getting various types of vibrations depending whether it was telling you that you were going outside your pre-planned virtual Mm -hmm. corridor and then a different sensation if an object or obstacle appeared in your path?
3: close to that. Um, The chest vibrations were merely for object avoidance. And then to give us some spatial separation, the actual navigation for the virtual corridor was on the arm. So then you didn't have to differentiate all the different vibrations in one area, depending where the vibrations occurred on your body meant different things.
2: Oh, so that makes it a lot easier. You don't have to stop and think, did this kind of vibration mean this kind of issue?
3: Yeah, exactly. And that was the reason, you know, for doing that spatial separation. Because you're right, when you do it all in one area, there's too much processing time. So now rather than reacting, there's the delay in thought process. So the idea was to separate those two things.
1: So now you actually took this device and decided to try running the New York Marathon alone. Is that right? That's right. And how did that all work? I suppose you had a, a bib on saying that you were blind so people knew to be a little bit careful around you?
3: Um, that, That'd have been the sensible thing to do. Uh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I guess we've learned by now that you are a risk taker.
3: <laughs> yeah, the the way we did it is um, safety was a concern because not my personal safety, you know, because, well, that's my own fault if I, if I make a mistake. But I, I really didn't want to... Um, injure another runner or run into another runner uh, you know because you know someone may have been training for a long time you know this could have been their dream to run this race
1: yeah that can be pretty serious
3: so the way we ensure safety is there was uh, we had uh, some people running very close behind so then they could interject if anything was to go wrong with the technology You know, because we really didn't want to run into another person.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
3: You know, they're always more than happy to let me run into static objects, but, you know.
1: (laughs) Just part of the test. (laughs) These must be
2: really good friends.
3: Yeah, you know, I went out, went to the desert. It was the same guy who went to the desert with me. And yeah, you know, I I hurt myself in the desert, but, you know, that, that, that was part of it. We wanted to see how far we could push it, and, you know, I trust him. You know, I always know he will interject if it's something that's really bad. So, yeah, a lot of trust.
1: So how did this actually work out? I can imagine the beginning of these races are usually incredibly crowded and dense with people. That had to be one of the more difficult parts, I would guess.
3: Oddly, New York is the other way around. Because so many people run New York. The way it works is there's different, not only you get different, but you start at different points in a bridge. And this bridge is multiple stories high. So what happens is when you set off, there's only a small amount of the people for the entire race. And then you all merge together at a later point within the race course. So actually, the beginning of the race is not as busy as, let's say, when you're eight miles in. Because once you're eight miles in, then it gets intensely busy
1: oh interesting
3: so the first few miles to be honest were the easiest miles because you know not as many people We were talking in the hundreds rather than uh, you know the thousands so the idea was to run the first two miles uh, just using the object detection system because the first two miles is a bridge so basically a pedestrian should never be on that bridge you know it's just for cars it's, it's not like it's any sidewalk or anything so the system wouldn't really account for that and it, it was just uh, not going to work very well it's quite a close bridge so do the first two miles using object avoidance only drop off the bridge then turn on the the navigation system so the bridge went really well um it was actually quite freeing because it's not a location you know i'd ever run solo before and um, you know the object detection worked incredibly well i could sort of run up to people detect there was someone there drift left drift right figure out which way to go and and avoid them it, so yeah it worked better than i'd imagined actually it, it worked really well
1: interesting When I used to run and had partial vision, I used to actually use other people to help me navigate if I didn't quite know where to go. And I'm wondering if you could use the object detection sort of like that, knowing where a person was and kind of latching on like a rabbit.
3: (laughs) Yeah, we actually actually did exactly that. Basically, because the amplitude changed, you know, depending on the distance of the runner, you could lock in on a particular amplitude and then stick at that Mm -hmm. and then follow that person. Interesting. it turned out that was actually an interesting way to navigate, and it would turn out that's how I actually ended up doing the race. Because, like I say, we dropped off the bridge, and as you know, we'd been testing this for months and months and months, but the navigation system failed, just could not get it to work. It kept glitching out.
1: So, is that because of being in a big city and the big buildings blocking the satellites?
3: tested it it had been tested on the exact course you know ahead of time the development took place in new york so you know these are things that you know we've been accounting for but comes on the day and you know technology sometimes unfortunately you know just does not work as intended
1: yeah Oops. yeah wow
3: but because we had the object detection system then you basically use that and uh, and navigate the race exactly how you described in terms of you latch on to someone, follow them. And uh, that's how I ended up navigating.
2: So a marathon is 26.2 miles long, and it takes most people several hours to complete. And you only had half the technology you were planning on. How did it work out for
3: you? once I got to around 15 miles, what had been happening is, because it was raining, the performance of the ultrasonics had been deteriorating uh, the further I got into the race. So by mile 15, the performance had deteriorated to the point where I could no longer use it to lock on to people to navigate the course. So then at mile 15, we just had to sort of call it on safety and uh, had to resort to using a guide for the last 11 But, you know, we'd we'd managed to do 15 using technology. And, you know, while technology does fail, the great thing about technology is it improves. And, you know, you can keep moving forward, you know, use some different sensors and uh, improve it for next time.
1: Well, I mean, that's it. Sometimes the only way to fix a technology is you go through these failures. You find out what breaks, what doesn't work. And the next time, you know a little bit better. And that's the way we keep improving
3: technologies, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if someone's not going to go out there and test it and and push the limits of of what's possible, we unfortunately don't move things forward.
2: I gather you've been in communications with the developers at WearWorks who are working on the next generation of the Wayband device, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we communicate all the time. You know, they're currently continuing sort of the R&D and and working on some products, uh, with, I think, with the hope of, perhaps putting it back into testing to the general public sort of early to mid next year and and getting it out as a final product to the back end of 2018, early 2019.
1: And I take it when they do come up with some improvements based on some of your experiences here, you'll be eager to volunteer as a test pilot again.
3: (laughs) I'm always willing to test early prototype technology. It's uh, always fun and you know I, th- I suppose part of the appeal is the fact that you're taking this thing that and, and no one's even sure if it's possible uh, of what you're trying to mm-hmm. you know push it to and yeah, I find that appealing so whenever anybody comes out with a, a piece of technology that're willing to never go out and break out will always say yes. <laughs>
2: Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about Wayband and about Simon and how to reach them.
1: So, if people want to find out more about this device and follow its
3: development, where would you send them? If you want to follow that device in particular, you know, where works Inc. on Twitter, uh, you know, the constantly update and you know what they're doing and, and what's happening moving forward. And then if you just want to you know, see what I'm up to. Again, Twitter is always a great place. And on Twitter, I'm and Adapt.
2: If people have any questions for you to ask directly, do you have an email address you'd be willing to share?
3: Yeah, sure. My email address is simon at com. Yeah, more than willing to talk to anybody about anything to do with technology or even training for marathons or anything like that.
2: Now, I just looked at your ANDADAPT website, and it's got all sorts of interesting stories and, and whatnot. Um, can you give that URL?
3: Yeah, that's just ANDADAPT.com. That's a Pretty much any way to get in touch with me is anything that's ANDADAPT. That's my Twitter, my Facebook, my website. Yeah, try to keep it quite consistent.
1: And can you spell that for people?
3: Yeah, it's AND, so a n d. A D A P T.
1: And as usual, for all of that contact information, you'll be able to find that in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. And also in those show notes, you'll find a link to a New York Times article that describes Simon's experiences in the marathon. I also want to remind people that they can make use of the search feature on our website, to search for any of the shows in our archive of nearly 400 episodes by a keyword topic or show number. There are episodes on virtually any topic you'd be interested in. So look for something of interest and have a good time. Enjoy the shows in our archive and make use of that search feature.
2: That's it for show number 1812. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be having some outtakes from prior episodes of Eyes on Success. They say nothing is ever perfect. Fortunately, though, with a little extra work, most mistakes can be fixed, which even applies to productions of Eyes on Success. Sit back and enjoy some laughs with us next week as we celebrate April Fool's Day by sharing some humorous moments that fortunately never made it into the show. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at
0: 585-210-8094.